Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Whenever a new technique or like innovation comes out, it's not the product. AI is not the product. LLMs are not the product. A lot of people like, get caught up in the, like, the innovation, the, the technology, if you will. But people don't buy AI. Like, people don't buy LLMs. They buy tools and products that like, solve their own problems. So really what you gain is like a new tool in your tool belt to solve your customers' problems, not, not a new thing that you can sell. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. The world is talking a lot about generative AI, but this next conversation talks a lot about how you can use these tools to enhance engineering leadership, to enhance your productivity and problem solving in unexpected ways that you probably aren't examining yet. Joining us is Clemens Mewald, head of product at Instabase. And we talk about things like the questions you should ask when deciding how to leverage generative AI capabilities, how you can use generative AI to address cross-functional collaboration challenges within your organization, plus how you can translate deep technical research into meaningful business and product outcomes. Let me introduce you to Clemens and why we're so excited to have him talking about this topic specifically. He's the head of product at Instabase. He's been a product and technology leader in the AI and machine learning space for over 15 years. And Clemens has held leadership positions at Databricks, where he spent more than three years leading the product team for machine learning and data science. And before Databricks, Clemens served on the Google Brain team building AI infrastructure for Alphabet, where his product portfolio included TensorFlow and TensorFlow Extended. So he has been thinking about how to leverage these tools strategically. Enjoy our conversation with Clemens Mewald. Thanks for joining us, Clemens. Sort of the headline we came up with for the things that are going to guide our conversation is around leveraging new generative AI capabilities to help enhance problem solving. So we're talking a lot about problem solving and some of the observations you're seeing for how people are using these new tools and and technologies with um, solving problems in different contexts. To begin, I was wondering if we could start with a little bit more about your journey and some background context on you and why and how you got here. Because I think what's special is you've been thinking about the generative AI and AI space for a lot longer than most people. Like you were pre-hype cycle of of this trend and have been involved with this since 2015. So why did you get involved in this space? And you know what ultimately led you to Instabase? Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. So I, I joined the Google Brain team in, back in 2015. And I guess that was my first professional experience with machine learning and AI. And back then, I think what mostly drew me to this was I was just interested in the hard technical problems. And when I heard about what Google was doing in this space, it was just fascinating. And I guess my claim to fame was that I was the first product manager on TensorFlow back in 2015. And then I helped Google adopt TensorFlow and like build modern AI infrastructure around it that is now used across all of the different Alphabet companies. And the interesting thing, what is what you mentioned, it was like pre-hype cycle, is back then was when large language models really came out and like BERT was developed at Google. And I remember like the first applications of these technologies at Google. And now fast forward a couple of years later, if you will, like the rest of the world has caught up. And of course, there's been a lot of development around these language models. 
but the foundations, if you will, were laid back in like 2016, 2017 at Google. And then just like very briefly, I guess, to fill the gap out of Google, I joined a company called Databricks uh, and led the data science and machine learning product teams there. Um, that was very successful for the last three and a half years. Databricks became, again, a very large company. I think by the time I left, it was like 5,000 or 6,000 people. So again, like took a step back in a smaller company called Instabase. And Instabase now is a very interesting company because it applies these new generative AI technologies, like specifically LLMs, to unstructured data. It turns out that actually you can use these models to understand unstructured documents really, really well. And I'm not going to go into like too many details, but these days when we talk to customers, it's like if a human can look at a document and like get information out of it, even if it's a complicated like legal document, hundreds of pages long, these models can do it, right? So it's actually like mind blowing of how far this technology has come. When you're sharing your experience and journey here, there's really two main drivers for why I've been really excited for this conversation. I think number one is your experience, like thinking about how to use this type of technology to solve problems for people is th th you just have such a vast amount of experience in a lot of different like use cases here. So the reason why I was excited is because every single person in our community right now is trying to figure out how do we incorporate this into our roadmap? What does it look like to build a product within this type of space? And then how do we organize our, our engineering organization around that to build that? So I think number one, you know, I know you and I are going to talk a little bit about productizing innovation as one part. But I think the other part is because you've had so much exposure to a lot of the ways that these different types of products and tools can impact people, you also have a really interesting point of view on how these can help solve problems for people. Before we get into like productizing innovation, I want to kind of talk more about like using generative AI to support leaders as they're addressing different problems. And so I was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about your observations on how people are applying some of these tools to solve problems from, from a leadership context. What are you noticing? What are you seeing? What's been interesting to you? Yeah, it's actually quite, quite interesting. And you're like, uh, of course, like I've been observing like these technologies and a lot of the tools that have been coming out. And to some degree, I actually have FOMO, right? Because like you, you read online about all of these people like using these tools and becoming so much more productive. You hear about all of these like overemployed people that hold like three or four different jobs. And I was always thinking like, what am I doing wrong? Like, why should <laughs> like why am I not using these tools um, to be more productive? And I think at a very high level, right? And like maybe it's just, maybe I'm just like being a little myopic. But from what I've seen is that at least so far, there's a, a order of magnitude change in like productivity and like applicability with these tools at what I would say like more junior roles. If you look at like these people that are overemployed and like hold three or four different jobs, they're usually not like engineering leaders, right? Like they're not like a VP of engineering that runs like multiple thousand people organizations. It's usually you know, like like L4 type software engineers that are just that much more productive in their jobs. I haven't seen like very meaningful applications of these tools at a more senior level. And of course, it is a productivity tool, right? So like I've personally like, played around with a lot of these, like even for like writing performance reviews. I think one of the challenges that I see uh, at more senior roles is that the, the problem space is a little more ambiguous. And the criticality of like your work product, if you will, is higher. So even if I use like some of these tools to like help summarize documents into like performance reviews, I find myself spending more time on then like criticizing the output, if you will, like editing the output, than I would have like spent creating it in the first place. So I personally like haven't like seen like a step function like productivity, if you will, uh, by using these tools directly. Of course, that doesn't mean that like leaders need to ignore it. All of the, our teams are using them. It's just in terms of like my own workflows, I, I don't use them as much as you know, like you would assume reading in the news. Absolutely. Well, it makes me wonder, like from more of a speculative perspective, like what do you wish a generative AI tool could help you with from like an executive leadership perspective? How do you think about where you think these tools can really fit the need of an executive leader? 
Yeah, it's a hard, uh, I think it's a hard problem. And uh, a lot of it, I would probably bring back to context. And what I mean by context is a lot of the things that generative tools like can optimize or like automate have like somewhat limited context, right? So like if you, if you're writing like a piece of code, uh, the context, if you will, like is defined within like all of the libraries that you use and like all of the other source files that you're using. So the model can look at that context and understand your intent and like help you really well. Uh, I think in a leadership position or like in a more senior position, Context is like everything you know about the company, about its strategy, about its competitors, about the product, about the people that are involved. Um, so maybe to take a very concrete example, right? And uh, I, I actually came across this at Google. A common like task in a leadership position is to think about organizational structure and like how to achieve change by like changing the organization. And I always told people, and I remember having a conversation with a very senior person at Google who came up with the perfect org structure and said, like, hey, this is exactly how we're going to solve the problems. This is how like resources are going to be aligned. And I said, well, as soon as you apply names to that org structure, it completely falls apart. Because if you put that person in this position, they're going to quit their job. And the reason why I knew this is because I knew the person and I knew the preferences and I knew like who they would report to and like wouldn't report to and like just uh, how that works. So I think if I look for in the, into the future, right, and think like, hey, can in the future, like some of these tools actually like help more senior like leaders with like the workflows. I think gaining that context and like that understanding about like a very complicated like world with a lot of different people is necessary. And, you know, I've been in tech long enough to say like never, never say never <laughs> in terms of like, is that possible? But it's just like too many variables to consider. And anything else that goes into, you know, like uh, more tactical like project management or like figuring out like the best way to execute on a project, uh, I think that's already more tactical and like some project management tools and companies are already looking into this, right? Absolutely. So you'd mentioned that from an engineering leadership perspective, like the main area of impact is less on like the productivity side because of maybe some of the the gaps in context and understanding intent and being able to provide better recommendations. But what you did mention was like from a teams and a product perspective, like th this is where a lot of the, the impact is happening. And so I was wondering maybe if you could speak a little bit more to the product side. As an engineering leader, like what do some of these emerging changes mean for your core product? Like if somebody's thinking like, oh my gosh, like we absolutely need to build this into our roadmap. What are some questions that you're asking when you're thinking about this? Like how are you thinking about the impact of generative AI when it comes to product building? That's actually like one of the questions that I spend most of my time on. And um, within that category, I guess, the first statement that I would make, uh, and like just so that's on the record, LLMs or like GPT is not a product. This is a common thing that happens when new technology comes out. Everyone thinks this new technology is a product and like they want to surface that to their customers. And that's the reason why like suddenly like every product has like a chat interface. And I think that's like a, a very short term and like narrow view of like what these technologies can actually like achieve, right? To take a step back, right, and like think about it more broadly, LLMs are not a product, like they're really like a new tool in the tool belt, right, if you will. And now a lot of things that you build from a product perspective become faster, better, right, or like you can actually like do things that like previously you thought like you weren't able to do by using this technology. But I think the key thing to think through is how generative AI and LLMs actually apply to your problem. It's like, how can you take that tool, like these new capabilities, and phrase your problem in a way that like leads to a step function of like better part quality or like faster delivery. An interesting like analogy or like anecdote, if you will, behind this is when I was back at Google and like, I think it was like around 2016, reinforcement learning became like a big thing, right? And uh, I think back then you're like game playing with uh, AlphaGo and so on, like was like a, a big deal. And everyone thought that reinforcement learning would revolutionize everything. I was involved with a lot of different teams that actually was trying to apply reinforcement learning to like a lot of different products uh, at Google. The challenge that I found with this is that uh, people had a very hard time applying the concept of reinforcement learning to their problem. 
you have to think about an environment where there's different actors that can take different actions and then there's a long-term reward function. And it was just not natural to like apply this to many different problems, but it turns out actually like almost any machine learning problem can be rephrased as a reinforcement learning problem, right? Any recommendation problem could be a reinforcement learning problem. And I think actually one of the first places it was applied is actually like notifications, uh, I think in YouTube. Reinforcement learning, I think one of the big challenges was that people couldn't apply that framework to their problems. With generative AI, I think what happened was that uh, number one, the form factor is just so natural to us. It's, it's language and it's, you ask a question, you get a response. The concept of generating like tokens or like text that fit, fit your expectation, people just have found it much more natural to apply uh, to their problem. So like they found out that you can like generate code, you can generate JSON, you can generate like anything. And that's why I think there's been so many different applications. But coming back to your original question in terms of like how to think about applying this to your product, really what like generative AI helps you to do is generate content or like generate sequences of tokens that previously like you couldn't have done in like a similar like fast and like efficient manner. And how that gets surfaced in your product is a completely orthogonal question, right? In many cases, if people like force their product into like this, like, oh, like now we just have like a chatbot QA is exactly the wrong way of thinking about it, right? Um, and there's like many more creative ways that can actually be applied. Well, when you say there's a lot more different creative ways to apply it. In talking to a lot of leaders, like, you know, we had a, a generative AI focused executive dinner a few weeks ago, and everybody has said this is changing our roadmap. But a lot of people kind of were naturally then moving to, well, the first thing we need to do is to build a chatbot within inside of our product. So it's almost like that was like the first thing to do. So like when you're talking about creative applications, like, what do you mean by that? So the reason why the, these models can be easily applied anywhere is um, because it turns out, especially in the technology space, uh, if you can create something from a, a written configuration, right, like maybe it's code, maybe it's like actually like a config, that can significantly accelerate the development process. So actually like seeing the creative space these days, a lot of tools where like I've, I've seen like a video capture of like a 3D, a 3D animation tool where you can create objects and then you can literally just say, hey, I want to create a bridge with like three piers with like four lanes wide. And it actually creates that for you, right? You could argue that that's a chatbot, but it's like not really, right? You're giving instructions and it's generating a config under the hood that is then represented as like 3D objects, right? So I think the, the main point is that this like natural language in and out works well, like if you like have a support bot, but the instruction in and like structured information out that you can then use to like generate, you know, like 3D objects or like even I think if you use Photoshop, right? Or like these days, uh, it actually like translates uh, instructions to Photoshop, right? You could imagine like the more short-term application of like having a chatbot saying like, hey, how do I create like 3D objects in this tool? And like, it will tell you, right? So I think shortcutting that like entire process by generating configuration that can then be used in your product is already like a step ahead. And then there's like an entire category of products that just use LLMs under the hood without even like having that natural language interface, if you will, exposed. And I'll, I'm just going to use like Instabase, uh, which is the product that I work on right now. It turns out with Instabase, you can take like any document and extract information from the document without training models specifically for the document type, right? So it used to be in like the supervised machine learning world where for every single document type, you have to like train a supervised uh, model where you have to annotate data, train that model, and then extract information. Now you can actually just take LLMs, extract that information into a structured format without any fine tuning, without any like data annotation, it just works. And it also turns out that you can just tell the model, hey, give me the most relevant information from this document as a JSON in the background, right? So like, I'm not saying that this is the user interface. And the model actually does a really good job of extracting information and putting it into like a perfectly structured JSON. 
without the user like even having like shown any intent or like having to type anything in. And I think therein lies like another insight here, which is prompt engineering is a thing for a reason, right? Like these models are like very finicky and like how you actually express like the prompt is important. If your product can do that on behalf of the user, you're basically like taking away that like that variability, right? Because like in this concrete example, like there is a there's a right way to write that prompt of saying like, hey, give me the most relevant information from this document as a JSON. It's not that prompt, by the way, it's a little more complicated. And if I just gave a chat box to my users, like maybe out of like a thousand users, like one would come up with like the correct prompt and like everyone else would just like try other random things, right? So I think the like doing the prompt engineering for your users and uh, basically providing just functionality without even exposing that in the product uh, is actually the right thing to do in many cases. Uh, because it, it turns out natural language is like pretty flexible. And from experience, I can also tell you that a lot of these models actually are very sensitive to even like capitalization. So like if you if you ask a question and then you ask the same question like without capitalization, you will get an entirely different answer. And that's just not the right product experience, right? And like that's why exposing like a chat box in many cases like leads actually like to that variability and to that inconsistent behavior. The insight you just shared to me is mind-blowing from a product perspective removing even as much as possible the complications of of the prompt engineering side of things like because that's where I, I almost get anxiety thinking about like is my prompt the, the mo- most correct prompt that's going to get the output that I want and I don't quite know how to phrase it and sometimes like there's all these analogous words that are like you know all these similar words that I could use to, to generate that output so just for anybody listening if you t- apply that mentality or that principle to your product it makes a huge impact there is a way around this by the way if for anyone who's interested Google search has the same problem, right? Like you can express the same search in like a million different ways. And like there's an entire category of like query rewriting, right? That says like, hey, like take a query and like rewrite it in a canonical form such that like if 10,000 different people like express the same intent in like 10,000 different ways, they get the same result. There are methods for this and you know, like query rewriting is a thing, uh, but like most people don't do that, right? Like they just expose like a GPT API through a product and then like let the user basically figure it out. And I'm, half the time, I'm not even sure what I want exactly. And so that's what the, the specificity of like what I'm looking for too is also the hard part. So it's almost like, I don't know what I don't know. And so I think that's great. I wanted to dive in deeper into like how to frame better questions to leverage some of these different generative AI capabilities. And so I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how to express problems in the terms or in the framework that would work better with a generative AI tool, or just like how to better frame your problems so that they can better take advantage of some of these tools. Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I think there's, uh, and like we've experimented a lot with a lot of different tools. And, and I think there's a couple of insights um, that are extremely useful that are generally applicable. I think one of them is definitely providing examples of like what you want the output to look like, right? It happens like quite frequently, especially like when you use this like behind the scenes, like in your products, you can actually like tell these models, hey, the output should look like this JSON structure, just fill in the the blanks and it will like do so, right? Like it will return the same JSON with you and like fill in the blanks with information that it thinks is needed there. Providing that context is a good example. Um, Similarly, what people refer to as like few-shot learning, which is providing examples of like what good answers look like, actually like also help these models like uh, mimic your intent, right? So you can say, this is the type of answer that I'm looking for. Here are some good examples of like questions and answers. Please answer in the same way. Also will result in the better outcome. So those are just like some of the tips and tricks for prompting itself. A much more important insight, I think, uh, at least like that I've had at, at some point, is like really broadly applicable which is uh, it's very hard for these models to produce anything that's 
uh, factually correct. And what I mean by this is not in the, in the sense of, you know, like facts based on history, but, you know, like, let's say generating code, right? And like a lot of people, of course, actually like figured that out pretty quickly that it happily, these models like happily generate code for you, but they don't know if it's like syntactically correct, right? Or like semantically correct. Uh, it's just like, it looks like code because like it just produced a set of tokens that like look like code. And of course, there's been a lot of work behind this, but I think that the broad example is in instructive. It turns out that these models are much better at writing tests. So one thing that you can actually do is you can let it write code and like you can provide test cases and say, hey, please let it write a test for this function and then let it iterate on the function until it passes the test. Uh, so that is an interesting insight that I've seen like more broadly applicable, which is if you have like a very open-ended problem, such as in like generate this code, it's a very hard problem. If you can narrow down the verification of like, hey, is this a good piece of code? And then like let the models like iterate on like that hard problem, it's more likely to result in a good outcome. And like now we, it's getting into this like generic topic of you know, like agents and like multi-step uh, conversations and like letting the model iterate. But I've seen a lot of really interesting applications that use that principle of saying like, not try like the hard problem, like try the easy problem, then like iterate on the hard problem on, until it passes the test. Which by the way, I'm surprised by, I just read the um, Stack Overflow uh, developer survey. And I think testing was like number four or five on the list. Uh, for people that they use like LLMs for and like writing code was the first one. I was actually surprised by this because in my mind, you know, like uh, writing tests, increased test coverage and those kinds of things are like much more automatable, if you will. And like also like usually like a thing that people don't like to do. Well, I, to me, that's interesting as you said, because like the impact on writing tests, it sounds like it's much more reliable in that you can trust more of what's going on there and it's more reliable and verifiable. And it seems like with the narrative that I would see online is like a lot of people there's a lot of complaints about, well, like this code that we're generating doesn't actually quite fit. And I'm spending more time reviewing the code than I am actually applying it and shipping it. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think that's an interesting thing to call out is that it's almost unintuitive. Like if it's number four, it means it's the non-obvious thing that people should be focusing on in terms of like double down on that because that's more reliable and easily verifiable. Yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. And, you know, I mean, the, the reliability piece is actually like an interesting one because um, you see it, of course, with like, producing things like code and then like the, like you can factually check if it works or not. Um, of course, if you just like have it produce text and you're like, there's been instances where like lawyers create like outputs that like reference like, like cases that never actually happened, right? I would never rely on this, right? And like there's also by the way techniques uh, to avoid this. So just to use Instabase as an example again, we basically like point the model just at your documents, right? So we'll answer based on what's in the document and not, not based on what it thinks it knows, which is just like a compressed representation of like all of the text that it was ever trained on. Because that comp compression is by definition lossy, right? And like it, it, it will never like just be able to like reproduce facts. But if you just point it to your own documents and say like, hey, give me an answer based on this information, you can verify if that information is actually correct. Um, and I guess that's actually how it's being used in a lot of like internal like knowledge based type use cases, right? But yeah, you bring up another point which, which I think is quite interesting, especially for engineering leaders to consider is like reliability and quality, which is that these models don't have a good track record of behaving consistently over time. And what I mean by this is you've actually seen that there were, there were like public reports on this, uh, like OpenAI's ChatGPT, its performance deteriorated over time, right? So like GPT-4, like you saw some benchmarks and like it just got worse and worse and worse over those benchmarks. And I think it has to do with like them making the model more performant and actually like scaling it to production and also maybe in some cases make, making it more like secure. But that's actually an, an, an increasingly important thing to consider for like engineering leaders and like product leaders, especially. One of the reasons why Google was very reluctant to apply deep learning in search was exactly this problem, 
search behaves in a certain way and you can't afford from a product experience perspective for like your search rankings to look entirely different like the next day just because you retrained the deep learning model behind it. And it just turned out, I remember experiments at Google where like they, they trained a massive deep learning model to help the search and it worked well. And then they retrained the same model and it worked entirely differently. And that change in product experience is bad, right? Like in many cases. And that's what now a lot of people are realizing when they use like OpenAI's GPT, which is if they just rely on like the latest version of GPT, that changes over time. And like your experience may deteriorate over time. By the way, there's, at least to my knowledge, not great solutions to this. Like one of them is you just like pin the version of the model you use and like it doesn't change, but then you have to basically create like technical debt that you have to like fix later. Or by the way, and like this is a mathematical statement, if you train seven of these models and then like average the output, like then it will be more consistent over time. <laughs> but uh, that also comes with its own problems, right? The whole challenge you just laid out there was so far off my radar in terms of like the performance deteriorating over time and like understanding the implications of that, just completely off my radar. You're talking about reliability and quality. And that kind of brings up another area that I wanted to get into, which was some of these different practical examples for how leaders can maybe leverage some of these different tools. I want to talk about scaling technical teams. Like for an engineering leader who maybe their company is at a place where their primary focus is on scaling their technical teams up to the next level. What are you seeing there in terms of how these generative AI capabilities are supporting that, that initiative or that priority? Yeah, I guess there's a, a couple of different dimensions, right? Like maybe the, the easiest one to discuss is just like productivity. I think you will find a lot of like public articles that say like how engineering productivity has increased by use of these tools. And I just read, you know, uh, I was referring to the Stack Overflow survey. Actually, according to that survey, like 70% of all software engineers uh, already use Jennifer. I think it was... 40% already use it, like 30% like intend to use it. The number one thing that they were using it for is like writing code. And then it was like debugging and then like writing documentation or something, right? It's fair to say that like productivity increases. So in theory, that helps you scale like teams if like individual productivity increases. But of course, there's also like this other topic, uh, I guess, that we may not want to get into, which is, you know, people actually like being overemployed, taking up multiple jobs or just like working less as a result, right? <laughs> if you if you say, hey, like now I'm more productive, I can get more work done in a shorter period of time. And because of remote work, uh, I'm pretty flexible, so I'm just going to work less, uh, which is something important, of course, like for engineering leaders to consider. But that's an age-old problem, right? Which is especially like in software engineering to say, hey, I have some expectation of the output. And it's very hard for me to tell like, hey, did you spend like two weeks on it or did you spend two days on it? I think that that's something uh, that has existed for a very long time and I think is not going to go away with generative AI. Yeah, I, w I wanted to ask you about like rethinking the productivity element because this is something I've been talking to some folks about. It's like in a generative AI paradigm where productivity is just different in terms of your output. Like, do you think about it differently as you're scaling out those teams? Like maybe productivity becomes different. How are you thinking about that differently? Well, that's a, and, and I think that goes back to the, the, there's a, there's an academic answer to this, right? Like an, an economic answer, if you will, and there's like the reality, right? And I think the academic answer is like, hey, I just, if you give every one of your software engineers a tool that in theory improves their productivity by, by some percentage, uh, like now your like effective capacity of your engineering organization like increased and you can get more work done in less time, right? But that of course, like doesn't take into consideration the reality that like maybe some people like use it more effectively, some people use it less effectively. Maybe some people like basically like mediate by like reducing like the time they spend on something, right? And uh, just being overemployed. So that's just where it gets gets hard. But in theory, you, you should assume that like your overall like development capacity increases, right? 
I think there's a more longer term, really important question, which is what do like very junior engineering jobs look like now, right? Because also like if you look at like some of the open AI like benchmarks that they ran, or like I think they also like ran it against you know, like in, like interview questions, you know, like GPD four can like get like an L3 like software engineering job, right? <laughs> so I think probably what's gonna happen is that like the entire like job ladder is gonna shift one up where you know, like now people can be more productive than they used to be, like probably like by like roughly level. But that's you know like just like an uninformed, uninformed guess. But yeah, it's an interesting question. But anyway, in software engineering, that's obvious because there's been so many tools and like it's been so well reported and like GitHub Copilot and, and, and everything. But the same applies to every other job function, right? So, uh, and by the way, this was the second part point that I was getting to, especially like when you think about scaling engineering organizations is, you know, uh, hiring and like recruiting is, is like a very large part, especially if you're like in growth mode. When I was at Databricks, you know, like the company grew from like 400 to 5,000 people. That means a lot of hiring. And it turns out that actually, like, you can, like, even the recruiters here at Instabase, like, use some of these tools to help with, you know, like, job descriptions, other tasks. It turns out that uh, if you have the right tool, it's like a more general, like, productivity tool for any, like, white-collar job. I haven't seen, like, the the the, the killer application, if you will, that, like, uh, helped in, in, in hiring. But I would assume that, you know, like, uh, the, the job of, like, scaling up a company with some of these tools is, like, easier than without them. Absolutely. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. This comes up a lot in small group conversations that we host within our community. This idea of cross-functional collaboration, the main challenge being like engineering leaders develop a deep level of expertise within their domain and then bridging that gap into other areas who maybe are less familiar with the context of engineering becomes a huge area of friction. Just the translation, communicating priorities, everything like that. But this is an area where you have a tremendous amount of expertise in this cross-functional collaboration area. And so I was wondering if you'd share a little bit about what are you seeing here from like a from an example perspective of leveraging some of these tools or working through different cross-functional collaboration challenges? Yeah, so I think on the on the collaboration side, right? And by the way, funny side note, and like, I, I apologize that I keep coming back to it, but actually like in that Stack Overflow survey, uh, I think the last item on the list of like what would you generate for was collaboration. I don't know like what it is, but I think like people just like see it more applicable, like definitely to writing code. But I think on a collaboration aspect, again, like the, there's two dimensions that I would look, look at. One of them is um, actually like using generative AI tools as like collaborative tools. I think like that's one category. The other, the other one is like that falls into like the product development category, which is making sure like all of the cross-functional roles are on the same level when it comes to like these capabilities and speak the same language. What I mean by this is it actually depends on your culture as an organization of like how big of a problem it is. It turns out, so like I've spent like the last couple of years in enterprise software, some enterprise software companies are sales driven. So like the sales team sells something and then you know, like the engineering team like has to implement it. The reason why that's obviously a problem is that you know, like you you very rarely innovate through like a sales team, right? Like the sales team is like never gonna like tell you like hey use this like new AI technique to like build the product. 
uh, because like they're just like answering requests from customers. And then there's like other types of companies that are like more engineering driven, where there's a lot of innovation that comes out of engineering teams. And then the go-to-market teams basically like uh, try to make that work uh, through the channel. And of course, like the right answer is like somewhere in between. But I think when you think about cross-functional collaboration, uh, what I've noticed in like this like generative AI craze in the last couple of like months and like almost like a year, I guess, is that it's extremely important for all of the different like uh, cross-functional organizations to be roughly at the same like level of knowledge of like what's possible and how this technology actually like applies to your business. Because what can happen is that let's say your engineering uh, team is like very innovative and like they played around with like generative AI and like they fine-tuned their own model and like they're applying it. If your product team is still writing PRDs, assuming like uh, history and like the old world, right? And if your marketing team is like still not uh, writing about this topic and if your sales team is like very far away from this, it's not going to succeed, right? Like it's going to take a very long time for these cross-functional teams to align to like actually like have an effective uh, output. So what I've noticed is like more important than like anything that we've seen in the past is that your marketing lead needs to know exactly like what this technology is, like how it applies to your business and like what changes in the future. Your sales team needs to know this because like they're getting questions. The product team definitely needs to know about it because like they're the ones that like are supposed to like innovate together with the engineering team. And if like engineers building products that product managers don't understand, then like that's not going to work well. So I think the educational effort of like bringing everyone to on the same page becomes much more important. And that's actually like a key function of the leadership team, right? And uh, we've like spent a lot of time with like tech talks and you know, like with demos and making sure that like everyone is aware of the paradigm shift and like can think through like what it means for them. And by the way, even then, things still drift into the past, if you will, right? It's like you tell people about like, hey, there's this brand new technology, like the world is changing, like here's, here's what's important. And then like a month later, you, like, you find something that's still making assumptions based on the old world. And the answer there, of course, is you know, like keep reiterating it and like uh, actually like sometimes use those as examples of like what shouldn't happen because otherwise you can't move as fast into the future. My other question was going to be, you know, how do you then align everybody around these new capabilities? But I think what you said with like tech talks, demos, and then revisiting sort of the paradigm shift and how that what this means for each person. Are there other elements of this that that we didn't cover about like how to align people around this? Because I think what you're describing is so important is that like if you have engineering far ahead of how these tools are going to transform the business and everybody else is thinking about a different paradigm, then like what you're describing is like all of the friction, the slowness, all of those things come in as an impact. What are other ways maybe to, to help align on those new capabilities or, or pass along that learning? It depends on your organizational size. If you're running like a tens of thousands of person organization, probably you have to think through like very formal, like enablement, education, or like training, like channels, like make sure that like everyone like gets onto the same level, maybe even like certifications, right? It turns out that you're like, if, if you run like organizations of like thousands of people, actually like having certifications like is necessary because if you just launch an online course and like, Assume people take it. That's not how things work, right? At that scale, it, it really becomes like an educational effort. At a smaller scale, um, it's really just you know, like getting everyone on the same page, like even in like a more frequent all hands, like where we discuss these topics. Over communication, uh, I think, is, is extremely important, especially like if, if things move quickly. I learned this in a different context when both at Google and at Databricks, like my teams like grew by factors of 10, you know, like over like two or three years. And what I learned back then was that like, Basically, like if every six months there's like more new people than old people, you have to repeat yourself a lot, 
right? And even if you think that like, wait a second, like I just gave this like same speech like a week ago, <laughs> it's necessary because there's a lot of new people. And similarly with like very foundational, like technical challenges, you have to like over communicate. And like, if, if you think you've said it like one time too many, say it one more time, I guess, like for people to actually uh, hear the message. And then what I've also found, especially like with these technologies, like is actually like explaining some of the thought behind it. You just have to find the right altitude, if you will, uh, because like what you shouldn't do, and like I've, I've seen that as an anti-pattern as well, suddenly like explaining people how attention works and like transformer-based models work and like, you know, like uh, the math behind self-supervised models, that just doesn't make sense. And I've seen, especially like in very technical organizations, like sometimes people go a little overboard in terms of education. Absolutely. But I think to your first point, similar leadership lessons still apply in that repeating yourself and explaining the why behind things still matters, if not more so because of how fast things are moving. And so I think reiterating that point, well, I hope it relieves people because all of those insights have been available to you. But I think like you said, like the pace of change is so fast that the only way to overcome that is by repeating yourself and, and helping educate around the paradigm. Yeah, by the way, like even, even your own understanding may change, right? Um, so you may like you may learn something new, and then like from one week to the next, um, there's like a, a slight change in strategy. And again, like over communication is important because at the end of the day, if everyone like points in the same direction, you're going to execute faster. So Clemens, we've been talking a lot about leveraging these tools for an engineering leader context to help them solve problems or apply that within the context of the teams that they lead. But the other area of your experience that is is really interesting is the work that you've done to take you know deep research and highly technical things to connect them to business outcomes or to turn them into product or to productize that those innovations. And so I was wondering if we talk a little bit about how do you think about translating some of those like more deep technical or deep research areas into meaningful business outcomes or products? What's your thought process there? On a, on a high level, I guess there's a distinction between like, are you doing it once or are you doing that repeatedly? If you only do it once, I guess, like it's just like a one-hit wonder. Um, so I actually have like a framework of how I think about doing that repeatedly. And then the second one is like just like a very high-level statement that I think is like absolutely critical. So the high-level statement is, and I mentioned this earlier, like whenever a new technique or like innovation comes out, it's not the product, right? So like AI is not the product, LLMs are not the product. A lot of people like get caught up in the like the innovation, like the technology, if you will, but people don't buy AI, like people don't buy LLMs. They buy tools and products that like solve their own problems in the world. Um, so really what you gained is like a new tool in your tool belt to solve your customers' problems, not, not a new thing that you can sell. Unless you're AWS and like actually like that's the one thing that you're going to sell, right? Now coming back to the more repeatable way of thinking about this, right? So like actually my team at Google created that framework and I've actually like applied it since then also at Databricks, uh, which is identify, verify, amplify. And the reason why that was relevant at Google is because we were a part of like Google Research and uh, if you sit within a research organization, every day, like a researcher comes up with like something new, they publish a paper in like some conference. And then the next question is, okay, like how is that going to impact products at Google? So the framework was basically identify, which was talk to researchers, like find out like what is the latest and greatest in like new techniques. And usually like researchers, of course, come up with like mind blowing things, but they're not necessarily tied to like, okay, like how can you actually like apply this in like many different places? So after identify, like after you found like something new, uh, is verify, which is deliberately a very one-off uh, prototype way of like checking if what you've identified 
actually like applies to meaningful business problems and can have a measurable impact, right? So just to use the reinforcement learning example again, right? So someone at Google came up with like a library to implement reinforcement learning in TensorFlow. Uh, the very first step to like verifying if that's a real thing is like, let's try to launch it to actually like send YouTube notifications to people's phones, right? And if that works out, and if you actually like have a measurable business impact, then you get into the amplify stage where you say, okay, like now that we've verified that this actually works, let's amplify it. And like, let's make sure that like every other team that needs to apply this has like an easier job of applying it. And it becomes more repeatable. It's basically like a portfolio problem, right? There's like always like a whole bunch of things in identify, always a whole bunch of things in, in verify, and always a whole bunch of things in amplify, right? And I think if you just apply that repeatable framework to like doing it once, right? It's like, let's say I'm in a company and like I have a product, generally if I came out, like what do I need to do? You've identified it. The key point is like the verify step before you amplify it, right? Uh, which is, you know, like find out like the least expensive, fastest way to like verify if this actually like has a meaningful impact. And what I mean by this is like, don't create like a year long roadmap, <laughs> like build like a new product based on the LLMs just to find out that it doesn't work. But instead find something that you can verify in like a month or two to get a signal of like what it actually works. And then, you know, like go into the amplify uh, stage, if you will. And by the way, in some cases, that means actually to re-implement or like to start something completely new on the side. And this goes back to like the innovators dilemma, which is uh, most companies already have like a massive customer base. They already have a massive product. It's like very hard to change it. And in some cases, you know, like applying a new technology to that like takes two years and you're too late. But actually like in parallel, like starting like a much lighter weight, like new product or like new capability that you can like test things quickly with and like be a little more uh, like bottom up actually like helps, right? But I think for those who are familiar with the innovative dilemma, they can probably like see how to how to apply that. Absolutely. I, I have one more follow-up question here because you're mentioning just the the critical importance of verify and then the timing of this being of the utmost importance. Like otherwise you'll miss it. And it's so true right now. Like right now, things are changing so fast that if you're trying to plan for a roadmap two years down the road, you're gonna miss it. What's your favorite way to verify in a lightweight way? Of all the different versions of, of what this has looked like for you, like do you have one that stands out to you as like, oh, I loved doing this this one. This was a ton of fun. I got great signal. Or mainly just like emotionally, you're like, this is just so cool. Uh, I think the, the and by the way, like this also goes back again to like size and like what type of product you have. Uh, verify, by the way, in a very large corporation with a very large user base usually means like A-B testing, right? You can like run a small experiment uh, and like just expose like a thousand of, of users to it, right? In a startup, by the way, like Verify is often just like building in like an entirely new prototype and like pitching it to like an entirely like new set of customers, right? It's it's almost like you know, like pivoting to like a, a brand new way. So it really depends on uh, how big the boat is, I guess, that you need to like move, right? And how nimble you can be. But the point is like just to reiterate this and you summarize it really well, it, it needs to be quick, right? Like you need to get a signal uh, fast. And as soon as you write like a, a, a long-term roadmap, you're probably already too late. I love the focus there. It's almost like it really doesn't matter what you do as long as it's fast and as long as it gets you good signal. That's great. Clemens, we've got a couple rapid fire questions to wrap us up uh, if you're ready to jump into those. Okay, yeah. What are you reading or listening to right now? Um, I started listening to uh, podcasts mostly because I've, I have to commute in the Bay Area and I spend a lot of time in my car. So I've actually like been listening to a lot of like VC-based like AI podcasts. And I, I find them interesting mostly because I just recently listened to one that actually went into the more political and economic backgrounds behind you know, like some of the companies pushing for open source or like AI regulation. So that's been really fascinating. 
Do you have a, an, an episode you want to recommend? or? Yeah, so this was actually uh, an episode uh, with Martin Casado and uh, Mark Anderson, where Mark Anderson actually like wrote a, an article about AI will not end the world. Mar- Martin Casado uh, is awesome. We've, we've had him at a, a few of our events. So uh, definitely, I imagine that's a, that's a Titan conversation between the two of them. So it's probably some good, some good insight there. All right, next question. What's a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you? Oh, that's a big one. It's uh, something called critical user journeys. Um, and this is a, this was actually developed at Google as part of the product excellence training. And the short summary is like a, a critical user journey is basically like defined by uh, who is going through a user journey, what is their goal, like what is the outcome, and uh, then all of the steps that they have to take to actually like reach that outcome. The reason why I found this so impactful is that one of the insights of critical user journeys is that they usually span products and like they're not contained to like uh, just like your own product or like your own feature. So anything meaningful that anyone wants to achieve, like usually like goes across multiple different products. And as a product owner, you have to actually consider like all of these like adjacent products that uh, are important. I'll give you one like very easy example. Uh, in many developer products, uh, user journeys usually include Stack Overflow and documentation and you know, like AWS Management Console, right? Uh, so we've actually had examples uh, at Databricks actually where we found things that we had to fix in the AWS documentation to improve the user journey that like database customers go through. Because like they, there was like a step where they had to go through like the AWS management console. The, the need to influence like other products or like the need to like think like what else people need to do to actually like achieve something meaningful is very powerful in that framework. I, I love that. My mind's already jumping around about how I can apply that differently in, in my own role. We were talking a little bit about trends here, so maybe we can kind of get away from generative AI, or maybe we stick with it. I don't know, but this question's about trends. What's a trend you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? There's probably like a lot of things that you and I consider like in the mainstream that are not really in the mainstream, right? Because like we kind of live in a bubble. So whenever I think about like AI in general, like even cloud computing, like digitalization, like all that kind of stuff, we're like really early in the S curve on a lot of these things, right? Uh, and you're like in Silicon Valley, it's like sometimes easy to forget. Uh, but especially like if you're in enterprise software and like you talk to like a, a more representative set of like global enterprises, you will see that, you know, like the entire world is like still early on in like a lot of these trends. That is it's such a great call out uh, in terms of where we sit with that. Last question, Clemens. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? Oh, there's probably like a lot of, uh, I, I'm not prepared for this question. There's probably a lot, a lot of quotes that I could come up with. Maybe I'm going to leave with a cliffhanger that is more like on the on the philosophical side, which I like keep reminding myself of. Uh, there's a, a graduation speech by David Foster Wallace. Uh, and like it's called, uh, this is water. And uh, it's, it's less of a quote and it's more of you know, like a, a mantra, I guess, or like a reminder. So I'm just going to like leave the listeners with Googling and like finding out like what David Foster Wallace means when he says like, this is water. And this is going to be my, my first action after we get done. Clemens, I just wanted to conclude by just saying thank you uh, for introducing us to a lot of different ways to think about how we can solve our problems here. I, I think like what stood out to me is just how clearly you think about how to leverage any different type of tool to really specifically focus on helping people solve problems. I just think the the way that you think like provides some really incredible non-intuitive perspectives there. So just wanted to say thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It was great. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community, to stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups and other programs that are going on. Head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.